Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. On the 11th of August 1967, Hungarian police arrest a suspect that they had been chasing for nearly a month and a half. The suspect is brought to the station for questioning, and he initially denies any involvement in the crimes he's being accused of. Though as the minutes turn to hours, the man begins to crack. The suspect confesses to the murder that arrested him for. What the authorities were not expecting was a confession to something far more horrific than they had imagined. The police officers step out of the interrogation room to get some air, the fact slowly dawning on them that behind the thick door, sat peacefully at the table, is a serial killer they didn't even know about that had been operating right under their noses for a decade. Before we delve into this case, I'd just like to thank Atlas VPN for sponsoring this video. VPNs are one of the safest ways to protect yourself online from bad actors and malicious websites. I'm sure you've heard of VPNs before, but what exactly are they? A VPN, or virtual private network, is a secure tunnel that your internet traffic is rooted through, keeping your IP address hidden and your data encrypted. With Atlas VPN, you keep your Google searches private. You can safely search the web with real and organic search results and do so without your activity being tracked. You can rest assured that Atlas VPN has got your back as it blocks all the malicious links, ads, and trackers, and even notifies you if someone is trying to steal your data. But privacy and security isn't the only benefit of using a VPN. You can use Atlas VPN to unlock your favorite contents from all over the world can't access friends or other legendary shows on your Netflix account while abroad, that is not a problem anymore. Atlas VPN has got you covered. You simply click to the location that you want to go to and you get unrestricted access to that country's Netflix library. And that isn't just for Netflix, it's for all the streaming services. You can also use this feature to get access to different articles if you're researching or websites that are restricted to the country that they're in by simply just setting your location to that country and then they think you're in that country and then you get access to it. So it's an amazing feature. And right now, Atlas VPN is running a huge discount. It means you can get a three-year subscription for just $1.99 a month with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Time is running out, so get your deal by clicking the link in the video description below. With Atlas VPN, you can even save some of your hard-earned coins while shopping online. Get the best deals while shopping online, including cheaper online subscriptions by setting your VPN to a different country. Again, Atlas VPN are currently running a massive discount where you get that three-year subscription for just $1.99 a month with the 30-day money-back guarantee. So please don't sleep on this one. 
Get your deal by clicking the link in the video description or the link at the top of the pinned comments. It's brands like Atlas VPN that make this channel possible, making content like we do possible. So please don't hesitate to support them. Again, thank you so much to Atlas VPN for sponsoring this video. Now, back to the case. On the 11th of January in 1934, in Soylok, Hungary, a small town south of the city of Martvi, Peter Kovac was born. The political, economic and social climates in Hungary throughout the 1930s to 1950s was harsh. From countrywide off-and-on economic issues, the eventual horrors of World War II, and the eventual installment of a communist regime, these years were difficult and terrifying for many citizens of Hungary with so much darkness around him growing up, both within politics and his own childhood. Many say that what Peter Kovac became might not have been so surprising. You see, many people know of Peter Kovac, but they may not even realize it. For the people of Hungary and many more around the globe, Peter Kovac is not known by his true name, rather as the name his reputation would bestow upon him after years of brutal crimes against women. Peter Kovac was the monster of Martvi. Growing up, Peter's family's farm business struggled to provide. Though farming was a profitable industry at the time of his birth due to trade deals with Germany, other economic tensions nearly cancelled those profits out. The same German trade deal that helped the economic environment in the post-World War I era put the country in an unfortunate position as World War II began aligning them with Germany and therefore intertwining them with the Axis powers and Nazi regime. This connection resulted in Peter's father being drafted in the early years of the war. Now life continued on for Peter and his family until 1944, when a comrade of his father brought news back from the front lines that would devastate his already struggling family. His father had died in battle. At the age of 10, Peter was without a father. He would soon lose his grandfather as well, who would take his own life later that same year. At some points, his family relocated to Tisafoldva, which was around a 30-minute drive south from Soylog. There, Peter continued with his primary school education. He went to a Catholic primary school, but he performed badly. He was made to recite the entirety of fifth grade due to his poor scores and lack of progress. When Peter completed his primary education, he enrolled in a local secondary school, but he actually ended up not attending. You see, his mother needed his help to run the family farm, and in order to keep food on the table, he did as he was told. Due to this arrangement, Peter would not leave the town of Tisafolfa until he was 20 years old. And when he did leave, it was only to comply with the government. Peter, just as his father had, was drafted into the military in 1954. Once Peter had completed his military service, he returned to Tisafolva, where he found work as a truck driver for a shoe factory. The factory was a manufacturing point for the Tisa Tipo shoe brand, which is a type of shoe that is still being made and sold as of today in 2022. Peter was a hard worker and a skilled driver, quickly and efficiently learning the best shipping routes and committing them to memory along with any shortcuts that could aid him along the way. His life continued this way until 1962, which was when he met a woman named P. Juliana. Juliana was a divorced woman with a teenage son from a previous marriage who Peter quickly grew affectionate for. Though no sources described how long the pair had known each other before they got hitched, it is noted that 
in all the sources we came across that they hadn't known each other for very long. In 1964, the two had a daughter of their own, continuing to build their family as their home and careers grew more and more successful. With so much success and positivity around his early adult years, one could almost forget that Peter Kovach was already well into his brutal serial assaults and murders. Peter would not be caught until 1957. In 1958, he would provide police with a confession, detailing not only for the one crime they had evidence for, but also crimes that they hadn't even known he was linked to. This confession also went into depth, explaining why he himself felt that he'd committed such heinous acts, as well as citing the things that inspired him to kill. These intriguing confessions and explanations will be revisited later on in this coverage. To ascertain a better understanding of what exactly happened in this case, we need to find out what atrocities Peter Kovach committed in order to become known as the monster of Marfi. In the evening hours of the 22nd of July 1957, Peter decides to go to a cinema in town, which was a common activity for him. His love of film and literature made him a frequent visitor of both the cinema and library in Tisafolva. That July evening, the cinema is playing Abuso de Confianza, which is an Argentinian film made in 1950. The film, whose title translates to Breach of Trust, is based on a novel by the same title written by Pierre Wolf. It had been released on the 21st of September 1950 and is noted as being exceptionally graphic for the time. One of the more violent scenes from the movie depicts the rape of a female character within the film. By his own admission, this scene stuck with Peter, replaying in his mind as he left the cinema on his bike and headed home. He would continue cycling until he was consumed by his constant replaying of this scene in his mind over and over again. Suddenly, Peter changes his course, biking towards the shoe factory before stopping near a small line of train tracks. Peter dismounts his bike and finds a piece of iron laying on the ground. He grabs the stray piece of iron and waits. After around 10 minutes of waiting, he sees someone walking down the road, a young woman named Margit Segedi. Margit, aged 23, was walking home from the evening shift at the Tisa Chipo shoe factory, the very same factory that Peter worked as a truck driver for. Peter is not aware of this, as he'd never met Margit before, but to Peter, that didn't matter. The unsuspecting young woman continues her walk home as she always had, exhausted from a long day's work and ready to finally rest. Unfortunately for Margit, she would never make it home. As Margit walks past where Peter was hiding, Peter remounts his bike, quietly following her for several meters before rushing ahead of her on his bike to catch her off guard. Before Margit could react to the sudden appearance of the man, he leaps from his bike with the iron in hand. Peter strikes Margit in the head with the iron, causing her to collapse to the floor. With Margit on the ground, unable to fight back, Peter drags her off the road and into the grass besides it. It was in this catchment that Peter would strangle Margit to death. Once Margit was deceased, Peter began to strip her body of clothing. He stands over her then mostly nude remains and touches himself. And after finishing, Peter takes Margit's remains and disposes of her in a catchment or ditch alongside the road. He then recollects his bike and cycles home without even knowing the name of the woman that he'd just killed. He would carry on his life the following day as if the night before had been uneventful, learning of her name only from the news that would break the following day. 
for Margate's loved ones, however, this was far from the case. When Margate's remains were discovered, a case opened up immediately to investigate the horrid fates that she had faced. Due to the lack of forensic technology at the time, investigations of murders were very reliant on eyewitnesses, interviews, and physical evidence that was found at the scene. Major methods within crime investigation and forensics that we use today, such as DNA testing, would not come for nearly another two decades at the time of Margaret's murder. And so, police asked the community for help, pleading that anyone who might have seen or heard anything regarding the case come forward, but no one did. Due to this, investigators are forced to turn to the only solid source of information that they could at that time, Margaret's friends and family. In the months leading up to her murder, Margit had been spending notable time with a fellow Tazar Chipo factory worker, Janos Kyriak. Janos is Margit's partner, or romantic interests, and this fact alone puts him on the radar for the investigation. During interrogations, Janos provides his only alibi to police. He had been home with his mother during the time of the murder, and although his mother corroborates this alibi, police are convinced that she is lying to protect her son, who they firmly believe killed Margit on that night. Due to what we now know was police pressure, Janos Kyriak does the only thing he can to save himself from being tried and likely executed for the murder of his partner. Janos Kyriak signs a confession for the killing of Margit Segedi, a crime that he did not commit. This desperate action did save his life, with him being sentenced to life imprisonment, rather than being sentenced to hang. Peter Kovac had not only taken the life of his first victim that year, he had also fully gotten away with it. The following years were quiet for Peter. He seemingly stuck to his work in the Tisavolvar area, and as was already mentioned, married and settled down with his wife. It is suspected that Peter had continued assaulting or murdering in this time period, However, no cases could be confirmed, nor did he ever confess to anything within that span of years between his killing of Margaret Shigedi in 1957 and what happened in 1962. In 1962, we know that Peter Kovac did kill again. This is confirmed by both police records and Peter himself within his confession. During the evening hours of March 5th, 1962, Peter is riding his motorcycle on the way to the Tisavolvar cinema, a pastime that he'd kept up with throughout the years. As he drives through the town, he passes by Ilona Shipos, a 20-year-old woman who he recognised from his job at the Tuzachipo shoe factory where he maintained in his employment over the years. The reports and confession are not clear on what exactly transpired in the conversation between Peter and Alona, but according to Peter's confession, the two decide to go to the nearby city of Marfi and have sex. When the two arrive in Marfi, they find a secluded place in the local agricultural areas where they can have privacy for their planned activities. Despite wanting to engage in sexual activities, Peter is not able to. You see, Peter suffered from medical issues regarding sexual intimacy. In other words, he was not able to get his little soldier to cooperate when he wanted it to. This instance with Ilona was one of those uncooperative instances. With the two fully clothed, his body shows no interest despite Peter's wants in that moment. We again have few details of the interaction, but what is confirmed is that upon seeing some clothing removed, Peter begins aggressively stripping Alona before forcing some of her clothing into her mouth to silence her. Peter would strangle her just as he did with Margaret. 
When Peter is finally able to, just as he had done with Margit, he satisfies himself over Elona's unconscious body. Though the location was fairly secluded, Peter still decides to hide Elona's remains elsewhere. He moves her body to the nearby Tizel River and secures a large stone around her neck. What he uses to do so to secure that stone is not noted. Peter then pushes Ilona into the river before disposing of her torn clothes in the water as well. Afterwards, he returns to his motorcycle and rides home to his wife and stepson, once again unfazed and satisfied by his actions. Ilona's remains would not be found until nearly a month later in the water nearby the village of Homok just south of Tisafoldvar. By the time her remains were uncovered, they were not fully decomposed, but they were in a far enough stage that the signs of strangulation were completely unnoticeable, if there were even still there at all. Experts who work the case also make note of something they observe, which makes Ilona's death all the more gruesome. Ilona was likely still alive when Peter had dropped her into the water. Due to most of the physical evidence of her attack being unnoticeable at the time of her autopsy, her cause of death was listed as suicide, and no further investigation took place. Having been successful in another killing while staying off the radar of the authorities, Peter was growing more confident in his crimes. It was either this confidence, or perhaps simple impatience, that pressed him to commit another crime only a year after killing Ilona. According to Peter's confession, after the evening hours fell on the 13th of November 1963, Peter takes a hammer with him on his motorcycle. He drives to the railway station that was closest to his home, hoping that an opportunity to commit a third attack would arise. Unfortunately for 33-year-old Isvan Sabu, that opportunity did indeed arise. Isvan Sabu, like the two women Peter had killed in the past, works for the same Tsar Shippo shoe factory as him, that night, Isvan comes home from work via the train, alighting at the very railway station that Peter is waiting outside of. When Peter notices her unknowingly walking towards his hiding place, he grabs the hammer that he'd brought from home and prepares to attack her. Only moments after passing by Peter, Isvan is struck in the head with the hammer and falls to the ground unconscious. Peter strips her of her clothes and repeats his actions as he had done with his last two victims. However, this time would be different. Before Peter is able to take Isvan's life, something startles him, causing him to flee. Isvan had survived. She was found not long after Peter left and is immediately taken to a hospital for medical treatments. When she regains consciousness, she is not able to tell authorities anything about the attack, as she had been knocked unconscious too quickly to have even seen her attacker. Less than a year later, Peter would try his luck once again. On the 21st of March 1964, Jozef Nisinka, aged 42, is walking home alone down a sidewalk along the very street of Peter's home, once again during the evening. Peter, who'd just turned 30 in the previous months, is already on the prowl, hammer in hand. He'd been lingering in the area waiting for a lone woman to pass by, waiting the perfect opportunity. When Peter sees Yozhefni, he knew his chance had come. He follows her for several minutes, too many to remain out of notice. After a bit, Yozhefni realises that she is being followed. She purposefully keeps an eye out for other people, hoping that the presence of others would deter what she fears might be on Peter's mind. But Peter is determined. 
He continues following her until he knows that he has her isolated. Peter rushes Yozhefny, hitting her in the head with the hammer that he'd been concealing. However, Yozhefny's awareness saves her. She manages to move away from Peter quickly enough that the hammer only barely hits her, saving her from being knocked unconscious. She ran away from Peter as quickly as she could, and Peter did not pursue her. The realisation of his mistake was heavy. He knew that if she had seen him before escaping, then he'd be easy to identify based on their location being so close to his home. Paranoid and defeated, Peter takes a detour back home. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. Though his last attack had left a living and conscious victim behind, he saw no consequences for his actions. Peter had once again gotten away with it. And only one year later, 14-year-old Eva Mihis would become his tragic next victim. During the evening hours of the 21st of March 1965, Peter is washing his service truck in Tisa Voldvar when Eva comes biking towards him. Peter recognises her as a worker from the Tisa Shipo shoe factory, but he did not know her personally. Though, as we know, this had never mattered to Peter. When Eva, who was on her way home, asked for a ride from her older, trusted co-worker, Peter knew another opportunity had come his way. At this point, Peter is seen as a trustworthy and good man within his community, since Peter had a child around the same age as Eva, as well as a daughter much younger than her. She feels safe with him, trusting, as others in the community do, that he's a kind, gentle, and hard-working family man. And so, Eva climbs into Peter's truck after loading her bicycle into the back, ready to be taken home to rest after a long day. She would never make it home. She would meet the same fates as Margaret and Alona before her, being viciously assaulted and strangled. Peter would dispose of her remains, clothing, and bicycle into the nearby Tizar River in the same manner that he had done with Ilona. Eva's remains are not found until the following month in April, where her story again aligned with that of Ilona. Due to the level of decomposition that Eva's remains were recovered in, 
It was impossible for investigators at the time to have seen the evidence of physical assaults that had truly killed the young girl. The cause of death for 14-year-old Eva Mihis would be listed as suicide and not investigated further. Peter Kovach had once again taken an innocent life and seen no justice for his abominable acts. For nine entire years, Peter had been committing atrocities against women and simply going home to his wife and children as if nothing had happened and nothing would happen. It seems to him at that time that he was, in a way, untouchable, that his crimes would simply continue to be an off-and-on occurrence for years and years to come, a pastime for him, a, a sick hobby. But as we all know, Peter was wrong. It was the evening of the 18th of June 1967 that Peter commits his final crime against women. Peter had planned further ahead, much more than before in this instance, offering a ride to a female co-worker the day before as a way to lure her into his truck. Karoj Sakaresh, a 38-year-old worker at the shoe factory, is due to work the night shift that evening and is relieved to be receiving a ride from Peter rather than having to take a longer, much more inconvenient path home. As Karoyan exits the factory, she finds that Peter is waiting for her just outside in his truck. She gets into his truck with her work bag, as they had agreed upon, and Peter takes off, driving Karoyan away from safety with intent that could only be defined as evil. He drives the truck down a road near a vineyard before stopping, assaulting Carroyne the way he had with all his previous victims. After strangling Carroyne, Peter took his vile axe even further than he ever had before. Peter uses a knife to mutilate Carroyne's chest and other private areas, finishing his assaults during this time. He then throws Carroyne's remains over the edge of the Uchid Bridge and into the Karosh River before disposing of her clothes and bag into a nearby field. Peter leaves the scene and goes home, assuming he would once again be able to continue his life as if that night with Karoyne had never happened. Her remains would not be discovered and removed from the Karosh River until later that year on the 20th of July. There had been obvious similarities between Karoyne's case and Peter's previous victims. However, the case around Karoyne's death would be different from the ones of the victims before her. Due to the mutilation and abuse of her body being so extreme, investigators would immediately consider her death a homicide an open an investigation. Time is finally beginning to run out for Peter Kovach. Quite quickly into the investigation, there was loose evidence, such as eyewitnesses, to tie Peter to Karoyne's case. When it became public that the police were opening an investigation to find Karoyne Shakarish's killer, Peter was nowhere to be found. His seeming avoidance of the investigation only cast further suspicions upon him, making the police want to interrogate him even more than they had before. After all, they knew that he had been the one to arrange a pickup of Corrin, so they really wanted to talk to him, and him suddenly going missing... a little bit suspicious. In the meantime, the case was explored in other capacities. When investigators began their search for evidence, there were no listed connections between Corrin's death and the deaths of Margaret, Ilona, or Eva. It wasn't until investigator Barlins Barner was assigned to the case that the dots began to connect between the four cases. Factors such as locations of attack, methods of remains disposal, and victimology, to name a few, led investigator Barner to believe that Carroin may not have been Peter's first victim. Police searched for Peter for nearly a month and a half, interviewing friends, family members, and co-workers to try to 
determine his whereabouts, with numerous alibis from his wife and many people within his life not knowing or remembering his whereabouts on the days police were inquiring about when the murders happened, Peter's timeline was jumbled, though eventually Peter could hide no longer, being arrested on the 11th of August 1967. His reign of terror and abuse is finally over. Police question him in regards to the murder and mutilation of Karun Sakeresh, expecting him to either make a damning mistake or confess to killing the 38-year-old. Now initially, Peter claimed he had consensual relations with Karun before driving her home, leaving her at her residence safe and very much alive, though investigators didn't believe him one bit. Peter was interviewed repeatedly over the days to follow before finally cracking as the police had expected him to. However, the confession Peter gave to them was much, much more than they could have ever possibly imagined. Peter confessed to not just the murder of Karoin, but also the killings of Margit, Ilona, and Eva. Alongside his murder confessions, he told investigators about his attempted murders, the assaults of Isvan Sabu and Yozhefny Sinka. Janos Kiriak, the man who'd been wrongfully accused of the murder of his partner Margit, was released after having nearly 11 years of his life stolen from him in prison. His name was legally and publicly cleared of all charges, but nothing could truly repair the damage that was done to his life over the wrongful conviction. The next year of legal and criminal proceedings against Peter are not clearly documented. But what is known and verifiable is that on the 10th of August 1968, newspapers around Hungary ran the same headline. The fourfold murderer Peter Kovac was sentenced to death. On the 1st of December 1968, Peter Kovac, the man recently referred to by the media as the monster of Marfi, was executed. A decade of murder and abuse had truly ended. Peter's confession was what ultimately sealed his fate. His retellings of his attacks in graphic detail gave investigators a deeper understanding of Peter's mind, allowing them to understand his mindset when it came to his criminal deeds. Something that Peter spoke a large amount about within his 160-page long confession stands out even to this day as rather unique, his infatuation with violent media. Though movies, books, and other media of Peter's time is now considered to be mild in terms of graphic violence and darker themes compared to those of today, they still had their impact. For the time period, movies such as the film Abuso de Confianza, the film Peter watched the night he killed Margit, would be equivalent to horror films of today that feature scenes of sexual assault or violence. Debates regarding violence in media and its potential links to real-life violent acts are common and have been for many years. However, this generalized debate often leads down quite the rabbit hole, a rabbit hole that we will not be exploring in detail here. However, many scientific articles have suggested that violent media is typically only impactful or inspiring to those who already have a tendency towards violence or violent ideation. An article published via Cambridge University Press in 2018 suggests that media might have less of an effect on day-to-day -day violent behaviours than many might think. The research found that while media might encourage more thought on the topic shown, it doesn't typically lead to real-life action. For example, someone who does not display ideals or tendencies related to violence would likely have no sudden interest in violence after playing a violent video game or watching a violent film. On the other hand, someone who is predisposed to or who already exhibits violent tendencies or ideations would be more likely to commit a violent act after engaging with violent media. In the case of Peter Kovac, it is obvious that the second example is on display. Peter admitted within his confession that he had always remembered enjoying books about crime and violence, 
These books fascinated him and eventually led him to daydream about the violent acts he would read about, whether they were fictional or non-fictional. He explained that the sexual abuse he had endured as a child also played into these fantasies. After instances of abuse, Peter recounted that his abuser would encourage him to quote, handle himself and to think of women while he did so. These instances influenced how he would come to see and think of women long-term, not as humans, but as sexual objects. Between his objectification of women and his violent fantasies, it took very little to set Peter off. The night he had attacked Marriott in 1957, the scene featuring sexual violence in the film he had watched in the cinema was cited as his inspiration. He cited other media within his confession that, quote, inspired him to commit the atrocities that he did. Though he couldn't recall what he'd seen the night he killed Ilona Shiposh, he did recall that the night of his assault on Isvan Sabu, he'd watched a violent film at home on television. The film, a theatrical rendition of Crime and Punishments, based off of Dostoevsky's novel, included a scene in which the main character kills another character, this scene alone was enough to make Peter long to kill again. Before his 1964 attack on Yozhevny Sinka, Peter had once again been watching television at home. That night, he'd watched a segment of a relatively popular show in Hungary at the time titled Captivating Tankers. During the segments, a young female character was sexually assaulted, once again fueling his desire to commit such a crime himself. In the days leading up to the murder of 14-year-old Eva Mihez in 1965, Peter had seen Lechichara, or Two Women, a 1960 film in which a woman and her teenage daughter are sexually assaulted. The most notable and, frankly, revolting instance of this interconnection took place before the killing of his last victim, Karoin Sakeresh. Peter claims that the reason he displayed further violence in Karoin's murder when compared to the others was simple. He'd read about that sort of mutilation in a book shortly before the murder. He had not just read about it in any book, though, but in something that sickens me to even mention. Peter claims that he'd been inspired by a book written about the abuse committed mere years prior at Treblinka, a Nazi extermination camp in Poland. The book cited by him within his confession, The Young Guard by Alexander Vajayev, was a historical fictional novel that did not feature descriptions of the source of abuse that Peter said he'd used as quote inspiration. Because of this, it is assumed that Peter had been confused not reading about it from a fictional book, but actually reading about it in memoirs and testimonies of survivors, making it all so much more disgusting. Many who have studied Peter's confession see his mentioning of valid media as a type of excuse, something to blame his crimes on that is not himself. Whether the violent books, films, or shows that Peter engaged in were triggers for his behavior, or if they were indeed an excuse utilized by Peter, will never be truly proven. For now, we can only speculate using his own words and our own opinions. The name Peter Kovacs and his title of the Monster of Marfi have gone down in Hungarian history as inseparable from the history of serial killers in the country's past. Though, something I wish to point out is how difficult it was to come by the names of his victims. Many articles and publications available in English do not feature the names of the women affected, despite their identities being public knowledge in Hungary. 23-year-old Margaret Segedi, 20-year-old Ilona Shipos, 14-year-old Eva Mihij, and 38-year-old Karoin Shakeresh were more than nameless victims. They were individuals who had the rest of their lives violently taken from them by a man who got away with it for far too long. Isfan Sabu and Yoshefni Sinka, the victims of Peter's 1963 and 1964 attacks, are also rarely remembered. These two brave women were able to survive violent attacks that no one should ever have to endure 
and should be remembered for that bravery. It is so common within stories of serial killings for the victims to fall to the background, with the person responsible for their deaths and trauma almost glorified within the media. Peter Kovacs was not a genius, nor someone to be pitied. He is a man who chose to terrorise others for his own pleasure and enjoyment. There are thousands, if not millions, of individuals who have fallen victim to abuse, such similar to what he'd survived as a child, without taking it out on others in their adult years. Those final thoughts end our coverage of these cases. What are your thoughts regarding this case? Do you feel that the violence in the media he'd consumed really impacted his decisions to harm others, or do you feel that he simply used them as an excuse to shift the blame away from himself? Let me know in the comment section down below. And that's everything that we have for you in today's case. A special thank you once again to LSVPN for sponsoring this video. Be sure to grab your exclusive offer using the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments. Also, make sure to subscribe to this channel and hit our bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video just like this one. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.